So let's look at Isaiah 14 again, this time from a different <clears throat> different translation. Sometimes different translations will help us see things differently, maybe. <clears throat> so Isaiah 14, uh, again, this is a greatly misunderstood scripture, but when you just read it slowly, it, it makes sense. It's a prophecy that Isaiah is giving after... Israel's coming out of Babylonian captivity, or it's a prophecy about the end of the Babylonian rule and authority. So it's being spoken to the king of Babylon, who is an earthly being, obviously. In verse 12, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, in the King James Version and the Latin versions, most of your older English versions, it says Lucifer. How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, but it's correctly translated here as the morning star. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Savon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you and they ponder your feet. They they ponder your feet. They they ponder... (laughs) That's interesting. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. All right, I'll get it right. Now watch this. Is this the man, not the angel, not not a spiritual being, is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms to tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home. So, and then he goes on talking about his corpse. So you cannot have a corpse if you are a spiritual being. (laughs) So somewhere along the second century, now you, is, the, the formation of the church is an interesting thing when you look at it historically. One of the things, like in my quest for truth and to understand scripture and, you know, who's, who's got it right, I mean, you get too much into, like, Western Christianity, it gets too confusing because there's however many denominations and interpretations and translations and all this stuff, and you start asking yourself, particularly if you start teaching this stuff, how do I know what I'm saying is really true, and... That's why some people, there, there, there was a movement and has been a movement of uh, people in evangelical charismatic circles joining the Catholic Church because they went through the same kind of struggle and they're like, how can I find certainty? And so they found certainty in the traditions of the Catholic Church, right? Because they realized you can put your own meanings or interpretations on just about anything in the scriptures. Now, another approach to that is to say, let's go back and study first century Christianity and put everything back in its cultural context. Now, that's not easy to do because you're dealing with a dead culture and a dead language. But I thought, you know, it makes sense. So I thought that scholars were able to go back and piece together what early Christianity looked like. And you'd find this one pristine, pure, this is the, the form of Christianity that is the truth. And if we can just get back to that pattern, everything will be great and it'll be just cut and dried. But what you find out is there is no such thing. That early Christianity had as many diverse ideas, actually had more diverse ideas than Christianity today has. And there were many writings and scriptures and different things, not just the ones that made it into your Bible. 
Now, people erroneously believe, because I see it on Facebook all the time, that when the church met at the Council of Nicaea, they put together the, the, the scriptures. That is completely false. They put together the Nicene Creed. But that happened in the 4th century. And your Bible as a list of scriptures was not put together to say these are the authoritative scriptures. These are the ones that are the most authentic and the most true and the ones that we will uh, use to guide us. That was not done until 392. So if Christ lived in the 1st century, died in 33 AD or 27 AD or wherever you want to date it, then we're talking about almost 400 years of incubation... Before they finally said, this, these, these books are it. And you have to understand that when they said these books are it, they, they ordered, that institution ordered, they said these are the ones we're going to follow, and then they ordered that every other book that was contrary to that be uh, hunted down, burned, and destroyed. Now that ought to tell you something right there. <laughs> And when we talk about the church fathers, please understand, the ones that are legitimized as church fathers are the ones that are legitimized by the Catholic Church. They are not the only ones who were writing about Christianity in the first few centuries. And so what you discover, if you really dig in, is that there were two, eventually in that 400 year time period of incubation, there were two competing streams. One stream that came to be vilified as Gnostics was a stream of of Christianity that interpreted the person of Christ completely differently. And what they would say is that Christ was the light bringer to bring you out of darkness, not so that you could conform to a group consensus, to a doctrine or to a form of worship, but that Christ discovered his authentic true self that was one with the Father, that was one with God, and was able to actualize that in his life. And therefore set forth a way, a truth, and a life (laughs) that could cause you to also actualize your own light and divine nature. They were opposed to group consensus and authorities and these kinds of things, and they were telling people to look within, basically find their authentic, genuine self, and give it full expression. The other group went so far, these church fathers that are ordained by the Catholic Church, in the early centuries, were saying basically that your bishop, the the leader of your congregation or your church, was as God in the midst of the congregation, that to do anything without the consent of the bishop was to sin against God. And so you have this current of submission that says don't think for yourself because you don't have the truth, we have the truth. Don't look within for light, look to the institutionalized church for light. Don't look to your own heart for guidance. And so to dismantle that in the third, uh, fourth century, 300 years after the time of Christ, one of the church fathers that gets the seal of approval from the Catholic Church is St. Augustine. 
who developed this idea that you're born completely corrupt, you can't trust anything about yourself, you cannot trust your body, it's sinful, you cannot trust your sex drive, for sure, that's horrible, you cannot trust uh, your emotions, your feelings, any of that stuff, you're completely uh, corrupt and in need of God's grace to save you. And salvation comes from without. Salvation comes from a Savior outside yourself who takes away your sins and through participation in the church through the rite of baptism and the rite of communion. Are you breathing? (laughs) So what's taught is this submission to authority. Now some of us had that really beat into us (laughs) in charismatic, you know, Christian circles, whatever. Those of you that don't come out of that, I I apologize. I'm still helping my brethren. (laughs) I hope you can understand. (laughs) So the pathway to spiritual growth, then, from the church paradigm, is through submission. The pathway to salvation is to give up your own mind in favor of the mind of the church. You have to believe like us to belong to us. You have to believe like us to get into heaven. <laughs> right? But I want to suggest to you this, this does not reflect at all the person or mission of Jesus. And that we can, if we understand that this passage in Isaiah is not a reference to a rebellion in heaven. Because see, that came about about the second century. But think about the strategy here. What was so horrible about this passage that they chose this passage to put some kind of esoteric secret meaning on? Because the plain reading of the text is simple. Isaiah is prophesying to the king of Babylon. He's using poetic language, which the prophets do almost everywhere in the scripture, to talk about his fall. And he's using Venus, the planet Venus, which is the morning star, which is what Lucifer means, which is what the Hebrew word there means which is what the Greek word there means. He's using an astrological principle to talk about the fall of the king of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon. So why would the church come in that wants to suppress you so that you cannot find your light within? Why would they come in and pick this text to specifically subvert it So that instead of it becoming an archetype of liberation and freedom and light bringing and the morning, it now becomes an archetype of evil and rebellion and of a fall. And I would suggest to you it's the I will statements. I did this last week, but just to review, now let's do it this way. So here's what I'd like to suggest. Now let's do this. Let's do this. All right, so Venus, Lucifer is a reference to Venus, right? So if you want to understand Venus in the ancient world, (laughs) what did it mean to the original hearers, right? Now in the Greek world, the title of this star, this star has been called by many names in many different cultures. The morning star, the evening star, right? 
In the Greek culture, it's called Venus. Venus is the god of love and beauty. So, in its original writing, in the Greek culture, and the Latin culture which inherited Greek thinking, Lucifer means the bringer of love, light, and beauty. Because Venus is the god of love and beauty. Venus is also the herald of the light. Let me read it, read this to you. Objectively, now this is in the ancient cultures when they're looking at the stars. Objectively, Venus is the light bringer. As she appears most brightly in the sky in December. The most regular appearance of the planet signaled a bringing I'm sorry, signaled a beginning of rebirth phase where the days would get longer and winter would end. Mythologically, Venus is incorporated with Sirius, the savior star. Sirius is relevant in June and Venus in December. So Venus, the virgin, announces the appearance of Sirius the Savior, which is on the opposite side of the zodiac circle, or gives birth to the Savior. Just let that sink in for a minute. All this fuss about uh, when was Jesus born, you know, <laughs> like, and 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 Christian uh, Christmas has pagan roots and all this stuff. But watch, Venus is a virgin who, as the winter has come, death, as darkness has come. Please understand, in the ancient world, winter and darkness was was not pleasant. Darkness was a dangerous time. You didn't have street lamps and and <laughs> flashlights and. All the stuff that we have. It was a very dangerous time, so darkness was associated with danger and destruction. Nighttime, right? So the longer the night, the more deadly and dangerous the season was. Right? So December would be the darkest days, or it would be considered the death of the sun. But Venus would be there heralding the end of darkness, the end of the rule of night, and the beginning of the rebirth of the sun, and when connected with Sirius, the virgin is giving birth to the Savior. Because the nights will stop in December, getting longer, and the days shorter, and the nights will begin to get shorter, and the days will begin to get longer. So therefore, Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, is the virgin who gives birth to the Savior and is the light bringer declaring that the light is going to triumph over the darkness and that spring, the time of rebirth and new life, is on the horizon. So that from an ancient perspective, the sun died on December 21st was buried for three days and rose again on the 25th. It's true. 
And during that time, from an ancient perspective, it passed through a constellation that the ancients referred to as the Southern Cross. So from a strictly astrological perspective, the light, the sun, died on the cross December 21st, was three days in the grave, and rose from the dead on December 25th. I'm letting this sink in. This is the archetype of Venus, right? But also, if you look in Isaiah 14, Venus, Lucifer, is the archetype of the cry of the heart to bring forth the light that is within by being able to manifest what you will and the ability to make yourself like God. The stripping away of everything that prevents you from actualizing your own godlike nature and being, which is your true light. And Jesus fulfills not the role, especially in the Gospel of John, we'll look at it in a minute, Jesus fulfills the role of the adversary. The one who throws off the oppression and slavery of that which represents a God who wants to enslave and control you. Who wants you to give up your I will. Who wants you to give up your freedom. Who wants you to conform to a certain pattern that is even contrary to your own nature and your own authentic self. So that ultimately at times all of us are given the choice between being having integrity and wholeness that comes from within our highest self, our purest self, and our most authentic self. Our light from within, if you will. Or to shave that off so that we can gain the social acceptance by group conformity. And a re, and that, my friends, is darkness. That, my friends, is, I'm not gonna let my light shine too brightly. I'm gonna let it shine a little bit. (laughs) But I'm not gonna let it shine too brightly. Because if it shines too brightly, Other people aren't going to like it. Other people in my life aren't going to like it. The church isn't going to like it. My friends aren't going to like it. My family's not going to like it. Whatever the case may be. So I live in winter. I have a little bit of light that I let shine. And I keep a lot of me in the dark. Are you breathing? And Venus represents that power within you to break that cycle, to break through with real integrity, to break through with actual authenticity, to break through with the daring to say, I don't have to conform, I don't have to be like everybody else, I can accept myself with all my quirks and all my whatever, I can embrace my darkness as well as my light, I can embrace my night as well as my day, I can bring the two together at dawn, and I can announce there is a rebirth of a new me, which was actually the real me, that is being reinvented and manifested or made 
like the Most High in the image of God. It's a twofold work. God made man in his image and likeness, but man must also make himself in like the Most High. So what does that mean? That means I have to be able to do the work to find the real me, the authentic me, the truest me, my light, my divinity. And be able to throw off whatever it is that hinders the full radiance of that light from within. Now, I already told you in Revelation, but because I'm going to make some statements that are going to scare some people, let's just... Because now I'm going to be identified as a Satan worshiper. No, that's really true. Add it to the list, Jeanette said, yeah. Revelation 22.16, the last statement Jesus makes about himself in terms of his identity in the entire Bible. He said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. So Jesus takes the archetype of love and beauty and light bringing and the light overcoming the darkness and manifests his full I am, not being afraid to reveal who he is. And at the end of the book says, that archetype back there in Isaiah 14, that's me. And the church came a couple hundred years later and turned it on its head. Now let's look at a couple things in John. I'm not going to go real long. But I want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus walks the path of a spiritual rebel. It's the exact opposite of what we think. John 7 verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea. Because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Now, why are the leaders trying to kill him? If he if he was a good Christian, <laughs> he'd be in submission to his leaders. Right, right pastors? <laughs> Watch this. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. But for even his own brothers did not believe in him. His own family rejected him. He's getting pressure from his family to follow the traditions and to follow the scriptures because based on the scriptures, in obedience to God, a Jewish man had to go at the time of the festival to Jerusalem. He's refusing to go. And look what he says. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the festival. I am not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You don't have that right, Jesus. 
You don't have the right to pick your time. The culture said now's the time to go up to the festival. The flow of the culture is this is what you do. So how did Jesus know that his time had not yet come? It had to be an intuitive thing. He had to actually honor the voice of his own heart as the voice of the Father and trust that and go with what he said is my time. It may be everybody else's time, but it's not my time. Everybody else may be going up, but I'm not going up. Everybody else may be conforming to this pattern of obedience, but I'm not conforming to this pattern of obedience because I am following the course of my own star. I am a star in the sky and I am following my own path and my own course. And all the other stars may go a certain direction, but I am going to stay true to what is within me and I'm going to follow that. So your time is any time, any time, because it's a collective consciousness. My time is unique and individual and I'm choosing to honor my time rather than the corporate time. So he's rebelling against the scriptures, against authority, against his family, and against the religious institution. He's rebelling against his own Jewish nationality. It's no wonder they killed him. Come over a couple of chapters. I mean, this is all over in the book of John. I'm just showing you a couple, but come over to uh, chapter 10. Verse 19. And the Jews, God's chosen people, right? (laughs) At least that's what they thought. Verse 19, And the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to Him? He's a devil worshiper. Another place they said he's, he's serving Beelzebub, the God of the, the Lord of the Flies, which was a, which was a Jewish mocking of a pagan God. Beelzebub does not mean Lord of the Flies. That was the way they mocked. So they're saying, by Beelzebub, he's casting out demons. He's got a demon. He's practicing witchcraft. Then you come to John 10. Where's that? I'm down a little bit further. Sorry. Kind of lost my place. Verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good works, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, being a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus answered and said, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? (laughs) In other words... Jesus is saying, manifest your God-like nature. Which is what it means to be a son. And do this again. Sheep give birth to sheep. The sons of sheep are what? Giraffes give birth to giraffes. The sons of giraffes are what? So if you are a son of God, that means God gave birth to a son. So sons of gods are what? Simple. Very, very simple. But you've been told to surrender your own divinity and God-like nature because we've taken what was supposed to be for us the ideal, which is Jesus, and turned it into an idol. Alright. It goes over. It's going over better than the first time I said it. 
What if I told you that the Bible tells you, that the Apostle Peter tells you, to manifest your own Luciferian nature? What if I told you that actually in the Latin translation, there is a verse of scripture that tells you that Lucifer needs to rise in your heart? What if I could prove it to you from the scriptures? If I had just walked in this morning and said, okay, let's do a prayer. Let's invoke Lucifer and let him rise in our hearts. And none of you would know I'm being completely biblical and in line with Peter the Apostle when I say that. We defend a book that most of us have never thoroughly read. We claim loyalty to a book and don't even know what's in it. And we demand other people follow our interpretation of the book when we're totally ignorant about it as a general rule as a Christian society. And I'm not going to apologize for saying that because that's absolutely true. There are so many of you that sit in churches on Sunday mornings and you just listen to whatever is being said and you think that that must be how it is. And then you go out and try to impose that on other people all concerned about what they're doing with their life, who they're sleeping with or whatever's going on. Had somebody, you know, quote to me the whole Leviticus thing. Why am I getting off on that? I'm going to get off on this for a second. Can I get off on this for a second? I had to quote this. There's a verse in Leviticus that says, A man shall not sleep with a man as he does with a woman, for it's an abomination to the Lord. It's in Leviticus, right? There is no prohibition, by the way, in Scripture anywhere against a woman sleeping with a woman. I'm just going to let that sink in. So let's look at some other things that are detestable to the Lord. If you eat any fish without scales, in Deuteronomy 14, it's an abomination. Crab, lobster, shrimp. Clams, oysters, whatever. It's detestable. If you eat anything from a pig, pork, pork roast, pork loin, bacon. What else comes from a pig? Ham. All you guys go Christmas dinner and have ham for Christmas dinner. You're detestable to the Lord. You start your day eating bacon. My God. In the New Testament, it's a Cindy rare meat. So, here's my point. How come nobody's out crusading against people's food orientation? Right. I mean, if you want to be consistent, and you're going to blast people for their sexual orientation, then let's, let's go the whole way. Otherwise, don't accuse me of picking and choosing scriptures because you're doing it worse than me. Here's something else that's an abomination to the Lord. Cotton polyester. Because thou shalt not blend your fabrics. That's the truth. Did you know cheeseburgers are not kosher? Because you're blending your dairy and your meat. Jewish people won't do that who follow the law. 
Which means every time you eat a cheeseburger, you're sinning. Every time you eat pepperoni pizza, you're sinning. Every time you have a ham and cheese, you're sinning. Really sinning, because it's ham and cheese. Let me give you one more. Let me give you one more from the Word of God. If you don't live in Pueblo West, and you came to church here from Pueblo or Canyon City or wherever you came from, you need to repent right now and go home. Don't come back. I mean, this is Bible preaching, saints. Church goer that just is... Stop being a sheep! This is Bible preaching right here. Why? Because you were forbidden to go to another town on the Sabbath. And all y'all trying to keep the feasts, because the Bible says, you know, we got to keep the feasts, and you're trying to go back and become Jewish and keep the Jewish feasts. The Bible says you have to do that in Jerusalem. So having a little Passover Seder at your church and in your house counts for nothing. It's still disobedient to the written Word of God. Oh, but I believe it. It governs my conduct. I believe it from Genesis to Revelation. Well, let's be consistent then. How in the world did I get off on that? Where was I going? Lucifer rising in your heart. So see, if I had come in and said, we need, to, we need to pray that Lucifer will rise in our heart. Oh my God. If you didn't walk out, I wouldn't, I would have no respect for you. If I just opened it like that. Three weeks ago or whatever. Right? It's in your Bible. Second Peter. Chapter 1. Verse 19. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In the Latin, it's the word Lucifer. See, in the Latin translation in Isaiah 14, it's O Lucifer, it's a reference to Venus from the morning star, O morning star or light bringer, how you are fallen from heaven. And for whatever reason, when old King Jimmy was putting together the English translation, they left Lucifer in the Latin in that verse pretty much the only place it doesn't get translated into English from the Latin. But my God, we better make sure we translate it in the New Testament to morning star because we don't want people thinking that Lucifer should rise in their heart. But in the original Latin translation of the Bible, it's Lucifer. Because it's the same reference to Venus. So here's where I'll close. (laughs) All of us can be compared to stars. All of us were born with the light that lights every man who comes into the world, according to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And every star has a course 
then it must run. And it intuitively knows that course. How can salmon, I mean, look at creation, see how much sense this makes. How can a homing pigeon be let go and intuitively know the course it must take to fly home? How can salmon intuitively know to swim upstream at the time, at the, at the appointed time? How can the penguins, did you ever see that movie about the penguins? You know, how can the penguins go off and leave their loved one, go hundreds of miles offshore, months later come back and find exactly the one that is theirs? Because they all kind of look the same. Just saying. How come everything knows its own program, but you don't? How come everything can listen to that internal voice that's wired in it, but you as a human being created in the image of God, you can't listen to that. You have to deny that. And the gospel message is, the, the, the Luciferian principle is this, that you realize you are a star and you have a course, and you are willing to fight for that. You are willing to rebel for that. You are willing to say, let's do it like this. I'm not going to die with my music in me. I'm going to sing every note that I came here to sing. And the light of Lucifer wants to rise in your heart. There you go. There's a soundbite for you. To declare the end of your night season and the beginning of a new day. To declare the end of your winter season and the beginning of your springtime, of a time of new life and manifestation and abundance and growth and beauty and love and light. Thank you. That's worth a hallelujah, right? <laughs> Close your eyes for a second. Just let the, the, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit right now just, just saturate you for just a moment. Just let your, your entire being right now at this moment be saturated with the energy of divine light and love and beauty. And I just want you to hear this words. You are so valuable. And what you bring to this world is such a treasure and is of so much worth. Stop hiding your light because you are afraid. Stop listening to the voices inside your own head that are constantly discounting you and your light. And let love and beauty and light rise in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.